Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bedside Matters. This is the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We're hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined, of course, by Dr. David Kipper. How are you, David? I'm great, Peter. And you? I'm doing very well. Anna Vicino, you're good? It's an honor to be here. And you're doing it remotely. I am recording remotely today from New York. There you go. And I'm Peter Tilden. And today we've got a lot to discuss, as we always do. There's this whole gas stove stuff, which I'm hoping that Dr. Kipper debunks it. I I don't want to like telegraph an ending because I don't know what the ending is going to be, but I'm very upset about this gas stove stuff. And then we're also going to be discussing a lot of uh, things in the news about multiple sclerosis, MS, including our This Just Happened segment. And then Max is traveling this summer with his family and they're going, wow, he's in Africa. And he wants to know about vaccines. Everybody wants to know about vaccinations anyway. Let's let's start with our first article because I need to get to this because I, since I am a cookbook author and I do a lot of cooking at home on my gas stove, which I call the beast because it has six gigantic commercial burners on it. And then this news came out about possibly uh, the gas stoves might possibly be making us sick. What gives, Doc? It's not just the food that's coming out of your stove that can kill you. There's also something that's called benzene. Benzene is an odorless, colorless gas, uh, so we don't see it or smell it. But in high concentrations, high enough concentrations, it leads to some pretty serious illness. You can get bone marrow cancers like leukemia, upper respiratory issues, uh, asthma. All of these things are really likely if you get a high enough exposure. And the problem with the stove is that it spreads way past your stove. It goes into other parts of your house. So you probably have benzene in your bedroom. Think what that would look like. Define high exposure levels. You said high exposure levels. So does that mean like cooking dinner every night? Or does that mean like you leave the burner on because you're simmering a stew all day long? Or what, what is, how are we exposing, what's the level of high exposure? Honestly, Anna, it really depends. If you have the flames up very high, on high, for a long period of time, that's dangerous. If you have a flame that's only for a few minutes, you know, that's obviously probably acceptable. But it's not just, as I said, in the kitchen and in the bedroom. We see it in a lot of products we have around the house, cleaning materials, adhesives, glues, And we also see it outside the house so that gasoline uh, fumes can do this. Car exhaust has benzene. And probably the biggest pollutant for benzene is cigarette smoke and secondhand cigarette smoke. And that travels. So (laughs) you're not safe in your home or outside of your home. And lower levels of exposure can actually cause some neurologic and cardiac problems. David, why why, you know, we grew up with gas stoves. If you're talking about this and you're talking about the results, you've had restaurants that use gas stoves for how long? I mean, a billion years. You would think every restaurant worker then has some asthma or leukemia issue because the stoves are burning all lunch shift, dinner shift. Yeah. You got this stuff going. Yeah. What do you, what do you, like all of a sudden gas stoves became a thing and then became a political football. Is it true? Is it not true? And then municipalities are now saying you should transfer and no new gas stoves. So That's right. No new gas stoves. Yeah. In new houses. Is it over the top? And we just have been stupid about this for years? Or has this been repressed, oppressed for years by, you know, the, the agency, you know, the well, gas company, the gas and propane companies? A good answer to that question, Peter, is now that this 
cat is out of the bag, I think we're going to probably start seeing studies for exactly that, for people that are constantly exposed in the workplace. And those are closed-in environments. So I had the same question you did, and I the only answer I could come up with was that. There is uh, an association, it's called the American Gas Association. Their job is to debunk all of this data that's now coming out. And they, <laughs> they actually had a solution, and their solution was to create a new burner that emitted less gas and the problem with that is that it was too expensive. You couldn't clean it and nobody bought it. So that product is sitting on a shelf somewhere. Is there a way to test for benzene exposure? You can test for benzene exposure, Anna, but it gets back to your question of what's high and dangerous versus, and I, I don't think that's going to be an easy thing to do. I mean, the obvious thing to do is to switch to a, an electric stove, but that's not simple. The, the government is giving subsidies for people that do that. And then you could try cooking on other things like toaster ovens or uh, induction cooktops, things that don't have the same benzene exposure. But, you know, be careful if you're outdoors, pay attention to when you're filling your gas tank. And if there's some exhaust issue that might be living in your garage, be careful there. And the products that we mentioned, the cleaning materials, the glues and adhesives, those are all uh, potential problems for benzene exposure. I missed the last two minutes of the show here because I just invested $200 in the George Foreman company, the grill company, because I think <laughs> everyone will now have a George Foreman grill again. We're going to have to. They're coming back. This is so unsettling. You know, but Instant Pot just went bankrupt, by the way. The, the company that owns yeah. the Instant Pot just declared bankruptcy. So they obviously didn't anticipate this gas thing. They should have They should have Can held I ask out you guys longer. about that for a second? And Laurie, if you, you want to participate too, because everybody's talking Instant Pot. I'm just about to buy one. I'm right at the cost. Laurie tells me all the time, it's like the biggest miracle in the world. How do they go under? How does this happen? It's not the Instapot that I keep talking about. It's the air fryer. Air fryer. Yes. Got it. Got it. Oh, wow. But you did talk Instapot once way back with me because I thought it was pretty cool. It's because you bought it and then completely it's too much to clean. It's too much to use. And you went forget and it's it. It's pressurized and you're always afraid that it's going to explode. Yeah. You're, it, it's oh, just, just oh it's like a bomb in your kitchen. Wow. Forget. So you got benzene and a grenade in your kitchen basically ready to go Oh, it's not going to end well. It has been in the news a lot. Multiple sclerosis. Where do we want to start? Because we, we, this is a two-parter. I'm going to try to make this simplified, but there's been just an explosion of information in the last couple of weeks about MS. And we've always looked at MS, which is an autoimmune disease where the immune system attacks the tissues, the myelin, which is that protective coating over the nerves, the axons, and the axons deliver the information, talk to each other, and that's how our nervous system works. So we focus forever on the immunology of this disease. And these discussions now have centered around another way to look at MS as causative and some things that are actually potentially going to be not only beneficial therapeutically, but they're hinting at some of these things may be curative. That's huge. So the focus has always been on myelin, and myelin, again, is that protective coating around the nerves. It's like the plastic around the 
cords that you plug into the wall to get your lamp to go on. And uh, UC San Francisco did a study where they took two groups. And this is really interesting because they used a product that all of us have probably had. They took two groups and they gave them Zyrtec, which is an antihistamine. And Zyrtec, for reasons I'll, I'll explain in a minute, the Zyrtec group for three months when they were studied with MRI studies, there's a biomarker that they identified, which had to do with the amount of water in the myelin. It's fairly complicated, but the Zyrtec group did amazingly well. And the placebo group for their three months, they had no signs of myelin repair. Nothing good came out of that. They then gave that group, the placebo group, Zyrtec for three months, and their analysis equaled the first group. So there seemed to be a good control on this. Uh, the problem with Zyrtec, which reflects something that we've spoken about before, is that Zyrtec does cross the blood-brain barrier. Zyrtec is a sedating antihistamine. So one of the problems with using this now as a therapy is that we have to figure out a way to balance the effect of the Zyrtec versus the sedation by it getting through the blood-brain barrier. And we spoke before about how we could manipulate the blood-brain barrier. We talked about this with uh, brain cancers. So this becomes a little complicated, but all of that is now going on. But the idea that this antihistamine can do that is pretty amazing. And Um, it repairs, you said it it not only slows it, it repairs it? It not only can repair it, but it also seems to give prolonged protection. And even in people that have had severely damaged myelin and nerve. Then the Germans came along. I know, isn't that Hey, David, before we move on there, because we know people with MS, and you never know where the symptoms are going to come up. It's vision one day, and then sometimes it's weak limbs, and then it hides for a while and then comes up. How do you target it? Or is it just, is, is it all in the brain? You're not targeting the myelin in areas of the body. You're targeting the source symptomatically, you're targeting where these nerves go. And the most common symptom that we see with MS initially is what we call optic neuritis, where people start having trouble acutely with their vision. Blurred or vision is is, uh, diminished? The latter. My friend, that's how he got diagnosed, was he basically went blind for a weekend. And then came back, completely blind and then back. Wow, that's scary. It's crazy. You give a boatload of steroids and they get a little better, but it's the beginning of that illness. So quickly after the optic neuritis, we start to see the paralysis and the other issues that are common to MS, if that answers your question, Peter. Yeah, yeah. It's just scary. I mean, we we have a, a very good friend whose daughter has it, and now she's suffering from that. And I also know yeah, somebody was just over the other day and is doing well on a new drug. But the drug is punishing. You know, the, the symptoms from the drug is not, is not a blast. And she never knows where it's going to hit. That really is the point of this discussion is that the drugs we're using now are aimed at the immune system to blunt that re- reaction to cause the inflammation. This may not be the way to go at this point. So enter the Germans. Um, they actually saw myelin as possibly not just protective, but problematic. And what they did was that they, they realized that the myelin that gets damaged in those areas of the axon in MS 
also damage the axon tissue, the nerve tissue right underneath them. We may think we're protecting them, but the reality is, is that they may be killing that level of the axon. And their studies showed that the axons will do better if they don't have that damaged or inflamed myelin around them. So now the question becomes, do we go after this damaged myelin as a treatment? Because we know that that if the myelin is now contributing to some of these nerve issues down the line, it may not be that we should keep that damaged tissue around, that we should go after that. So that's a whole other look, not only at treatment, but at myelin. Hey, David, is MS increasing? It seems to be, I don't know if the better diagnosis, but I know more and more people with MS, whereas Me used too. to hear it occasionally, but now all of a sudden I've known a, a lot of people with MS. I mean, autoimmune in general, but MS, I do feel like it's come up more. The diagnosis is increasing. I'm not sure if the amount of MS out there is more, but once we got MRI, we were able to now see these lesions and come up. And if you combine the MRI findings with the clinical findings, the diagnosis is... Makes sense. UCLA did a really interesting study. And what they found, and this also involves myelin, they were using estriol. Estriol is a hormone only found during pregnancy. It's not like the other female hormones that make our birth control pills and the hormone replacement therapies. This is very different and it's unique to pregnancy. And what they found was that people that were given estriol, it slowed the damage to the myelin and it also um, created new myelin. The way it did this was sort of interesting. It actually, remember this is now in utero because it's only in pregnant women. But this was able to redirect stem cell development into cells that produce more myelin and to, and to inhibit the stem cells in utero that could possibly damage myelin. So estriol becomes a very interesting player in this conversation. And is that because women produce it? Can you give it to a male who has MS? I'm assuming yes. It's the same... Yes. That's a great question, Peter. That's probably the unanswered question is that, is that going to have any effect on, on males? We don't know. Um, so it's nascent. This is new. New. So the two researchers that we know right. antihistamine seems to do something, and we know that testosterone now seems to do something. And there was one other study on MS that I found to be really interesting. They, multiple centers studied many people. And they wanted to see if there was any genetic relationship to MS. We've never found a gene that is truly associated with MS. They took these MS patients and they studied over 7 million genes. And they found two genes in this group that contribute to MS. And one, one of these genes repairs the damaged cells. And the other gene, interestingly enough, controls the viral infections. We've always thought that there might be some viral relationship, but it really does open up a new consideration as we look towards treatments. And now we're bioengineering a lot of genes, this genetic manipulation. Interesting, you have to have these mutations from both parents. And if you have those mutations, if you're one of those people, you're in the group that progresses rapidly you're in the group that uh, is 
going to die sooner and be more crippled by the disease. Because what we've seen in MS, some people live their whole life and you wouldn't even know it. And some people and other people go very fast towards these gene mutations without naming names. I have uh, a very, very dear friend who passed away during COVID. He had very severe MS and he had to have a knee operation. So he had to go into the hospital during COVID. They did the knee operation. There was a complication with that. So he was in there a few more days. And then because of the complication of the knee procedure, they put him into the ICU. And in the ICU was a COVID den, basically. He got COVID and he died within 24 hours. And so the question becomes, yeah, I know it's awful. That speaks to this genetic mutation about the viruses. So maybe maybe he had that mutation. Also, he had a pretty rapidly progressive illness. So he may, if we were to study him, he may have been that person that had these two mutations. Well, and you don't know, you don't test for these mutations. When somebody comes in the office, you're not testing for MS mutations. No, but I think that we're going to start looking at these because that would give us a window into their progression and then apply therapies beyond. I got, I got to say, this is crazy to hear this because my bestest childhood friend who was diagnosed with MS about 15 years ago, but she has been on an allergy pill since we met each other. And I've always been amazed that her MS symptoms have not progressed. And I'm like, is this because this girl's on, I'm going to, I'm literally going to call her the moment that we hang up here at the podcast and be like, listen to what Dr. Kipper just said. You have to listen to this episode. So I, I'm very curious. I'm just completely circumstantial. I'm just, you know what I mean? I'm very curious. If that's What's interesting about that, Anna, I had the same question. There are all these antihistamines out there, but it has to be an antihistamine that is a sedating antihistamine that can get through. Mm, I wonder. Yeah. So find out which one she She does nap a lot. But also, too, I'm like, well, maybe she she actually gets she's one of those people who will get rest. She's like good at that. Is there a downside to Zyrtec, David? Because I remember my my brother was addicted when he was a kid. He's nine years older than me to Afrin. And the doctor said it's going to explode your capillaries eventually and they're going to just stay inflamed. It's going to work the opposite way. Oh. Rather than help help you breathe, it can be a negative effect. So does Zyrtec have a downside if you use it all the time? No. Uh, the only downside to Zyrtec, it's the sedation effect. And not everybody is that sedated. And your brother's nose was being destroyed. Afrin, these antihistamines that we spray into the nasal area, the mucous membranes in the nose become so dried out we breathe better, so we think that we are better, but those mucous membranes become so dry, and then the capillaries that supply the blood to those membranes, they also dry up. And over the course of time, also you can precipitate a secondary bacterial infection in the sinuses, because now all these mucous glands are dried up, and those are your defense mechanisms to things coming in. The game changer today from this show, the takeaway is to get Zyrtec. And uh, a George Foreman grill. Yeah. Let's go to our caller for Dr. Kipper. Max wants to know about traveling and vaccines. And here's the question. Dr. Kipper, our family is planning a trip abroad this summer and we are going to Africa. Are there any vaccines that we need to be aware of that are different than what's listed by country or on the CDC website? 
So Max, thank you. This is a great question and a, a common question that I'm getting a lot now because it's summer. People are traveling and international travel is a lot easier than it used to be. And the CDC has designated measles as an imminent global threat. So the answer to that question, Max, is get a measles vaccine if you haven't had it. The vaccinations for measles went way down, of course, like all vaccinations during the pandemic. And there was a five-fold increase uh, in this past year over people getting measles. And 88% of those people were tagged from international travel as getting their measles. So it's out there. It's not so much here, but it's, it's around us. Uh, most of the people that got measles in this group were non-vaccinated. And they estimated somewhere around 40 million people never got their second dose of their measles vaccine. So the endemic areas, Max, if you're going to India, Indonesia, London, the Middle East, Africa, those are areas where we're seeing big pockets of measles. So I would ask your doctor about that. For those of us as kids that got our measles vaccines, about 3% of us are not going to be protected. We don't know why that is. We don't know whether the antibodies themselves just die off after a while, but we are seeing some activation of measles in adults who long ago were good little children and got their vaccines. What does measles look like? Measles is a high fever, runny nose, conjunctivitis. Five days later, you have a rash on the top of your head, top of your forehead. It's red, it's round, and within a couple days, it spreads all the way down south into your feet, and it actually goes in that direction. So it goes from the head to the neck. Why does it go in that direction? How does it know? It's got a GPS. There's a measles GPS. (laughs) It's down to your feet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, One other nugget here as far as your travel, for anybody that's traveling, whether you're traveling to... New York, or you're, tra- you're traveling in somewhere out of your comfort zone, always take with you some basics. Take with you something for diarrhea, for nausea, maybe a broad-spectrum antibiotic, maybe a low-level painkiller. Uh, if you're a nervous flyer or can't sleep, maybe something um, non-addictive that can help you with that. So for those traveling, you might call your doctor and say, look, I'm going wherever it is. And I'd like to get a little travel pack together. Makes a boy that make that saved me on trips. Like Laura just did that when you went away because you're in the middle of nowhere. Good good luck trying to get a prescription from somebody. So bring the emodium. Just bring the emodium. <laughs> and Paxlovid. You're not going to find that anywhere else at this point. Let's recap, David. So number one. Number one, we talked about some benzene from the stoves. Switch, if you can, to electric or other cooking concepts. It's not a practical solution for most people. Yeah, I'll say. And stop smoking. That's the other thing. Yeah, don't smoke. MS, new cures, uh, new breaking news, lots of stuff that may relate to other illnesses and help other illnesses, correct? The take-home from that discussion is that we used to look at MS as an immunologic illness. Now we're looking at MS having a genetic basis and also emanating from the brain. And new treatments are gathering things that we've had in our toolbox for a long time. So it's a very exciting time. 
And because of Max's question, we know that when we travel, get the vaccines that are pertinent to where you're going. Learn about that, but also take with you a whole package from your doctor of stuff that you anticipate may happen um, so that you're you're covered. Smart, right? Right. And know, know that measles is out there internationally. So be careful with that. What was the one? My mom put socks on my hand so I wouldn't scratch. Was that mumps or measles? Chicken pox. Chicken pox. There you go. Chicken pox. That's... And you don't know, know the cure for all that stuff? If you're under 40, you know what the cure was? They took you to somebody's house to get it. Yeah, parties. As soon as they heard yeah. somebody else had it, they schlep you there and hold you at, like, here. I'm 50, and we did the chicken pox parties when did I was Did you little. really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And what do you do at that party? <laughs> Have some Kool-Aid or some Tang. <laughs> Call it a I day. I don't remember it being a party, but, man, uh, that's how they used, to, they used to actually infect you. Isn't that great? Yeah. So for those of us that have had chicken pox, we're the ones that are predisposed to getting shingles. Right. Because shingles is the grown-up version of the varicella chicken pox virus. So if you've had chicken pox in your life, get the vaccine for shingles. It's a two-part vaccine. You take it within three to six months, the second shot, it will protect you. And it's a terrible disease. And if it ends up in one part of a nerve root that goes through your head and your eye, you've lost your vision. So oh, great. It's important to do that. And if you have a question for Dr. Kipper, why don't you head on over to bedsidematters.org, put in your question there, or leave us a message, and you might just get your question answered. And I'd like to thank Dr. Kipper. Make sure to check out his new book, Override. It's all about how we are biologically and psychologically predisposed to perform a certain way. So whether it's overeating or procrastinating, you can take control of your life. And thank you, Anna Vecino. And his website offers recipes, sauces, which I love, Spices and her cookbooks all about gluten-free, grain-free, and low-carb eating. It's AnnaVicino.com. And thank you, Producer Laurie. And thank you for listening to Bedside Matters, because if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday, so follow us, like us, and have a great week. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.